and welcome to another Care Home Management Magazine special roundtable podcast. I'm Alan Rustad, formerly the publisher of Care Home Management Magazine, and I'm sitting in for the publishing editor, Steve Hemsley, who's taking a well-earned staycation break this week. Today, uh, we return to a topic that's never far from the agenda for care home operators, something that simply makes care homes tick, recruitment. And today, we discuss recruitment and staffing the way forward. This podcast is sponsored by care home marketing experts, Smooth Digital, helping fill care and nursing home beds with private paying residents. I'm joined today by four people who know a thing or two about the various aspects of recruitment in care homes. They are Nadra Ahmed, who's chairman of the National Care Association since 2001, Samir Nazarali, who's CEO and founder of Simplify Group, James Sage, who's HR and employment law partner at Royds Withy King, and David Beatty, who's health and social care consultant at Care Ideals. So let's let our listeners uh, find out a little bit more about each of you and your involvement in the care home business. And so 30 seconds or so just to sum up. So can you introduce yourselves? Nadra, can we start with you? Hello, everyone. I'm Nadra Ahmed, and um, I'm the executive chairman of National Association. I've been working in the field of care for uh, 39 years. Um, so I have been a care home provider, domiciliary care provider, and have uh, owned care homes in the past. Um, my current role requires me to lobby on behalf of providers, support providers um, across the country uh, with a quality agenda firmly in mind. And so spend quite a bit of time talking to uh, the powers that be. And that must be fun for you, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's move on to uh, Zamir. Hello, Zamir. Introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Zamir Nazrali, uh, CEO of the um, Simplify Group. Um, as the core piece of that group, we run an HR consultancy called Simplify ER, where we do a lot of advisory work and, and sort of retained work with care home or with the care sector, ranging from care homes to domiciliary care to, to supported living services. Um, as uh, the other part of our group is a company called the Policy Library. Uh, so we provide compliant, downloadable CQC documents uh, to those industries. And yeah, you know, uh, I've picked up a lot of experience over the years in terms of trying to reconcile the employment law and HR aspects with the CQC elements and uh, invariably trying to avoid collision courses where we have uh, employee, employee matters within, within those settings. David, let's uh, bring you in here. Uh, introduce yourself from Care Ideals. Hi, I'm David Beatty. Uh, I'm the director of Care Ideals. Uh, I've been working in the uh, initially healthcare 2001 to 2014, running large psychiatric hospitals, doing a lot of crisis management type work. Um, I worked for Signet Healthcare, Priory, uh, et cetera. And in 2014, I then established Care Ideals, um, which is very much more focused on social care businesses. Um, and since the beginning of 2015, I've done work now for more than 70 different clients, um, care homes, nursing homes, domiciliary care providers, assisting them with all aspects of their operation compliance issues, HR issues, policies and procedures, safeguarding issues, uh, the, the whole gamut. 
It's a big area, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> I can imagine that keeps you busy. Well, well finally, uh, introduce uh, James Sage. James. Hi, hello. Um, yeah, so I'm a partner and um, head of the health and social care team at Royds Withy King. So we're a, a national law firm that specialises in advising um, care providers. And across the team, we do a broad range of legal and regulatory um, advice. Um, but my particular area of ex- expertise is on the HR and employment law side. So I have many years of experience and uh, head a team of um, employment lawyers who um, advise care providers on any kind of HR employment issues and also where there's an overlap with um, regulatory issues, whether it's safeguarding the employment as- aspects of crisis management uh, and those sorts of things as well. I regularly speak at uh, regional and national care conferences. We work with a lot of the care associations. Um, and in my spare time, I'm a trustee of the Care Workers Charity. Right. Well, let's move on then. Let's uh, look at recruitment, uh, the way forward. Lots, so much has uh, changed in many ways over the last six months, and we all know the reasons why. But let's get an overall view, first of all. Nadra, you're ideally placed really as chairman of the National Care Association. How do you see the recruitment situation at the moment? Well, I think it's um, it remains extremely challenging. And um, Before we came um, into 2020 with all sorts of visions of our own, uh, we knew that we had about 122,000 vacancies in the social care sector, which despite a number of recruitment initiatives from a number of organisations uh, was proving to be ever more challenging. And pay is always the, the, the bit that's um, muted in, in these conversations about it's because it's a low paid sector, it's a low skill sector, which we kind of always try and balance by saying, well, definitely not low skilled. And I, I can say a little bit more about that as we go along. But when we go to the pay issue, um, you know, we are all now governed by a, a, a national living wage and we start our staff on on the living wage, uh, which is required by law. And, and we then um, train them, upskill them to the levels that are required. And, and so there are incremental increases. Um, and I think some of that never gets taken into consideration. Now, you know, we are a very, very varied sector. We are, a, I always say it's like, a, like, it's like a quilt, you know, social care is like a, a patchwork quilt uh, and it encompasses so much and so many different facets of it. So it's not just about adult social care. It's not just about learning disabilities or, or sheltered homes or, or home care, whatever you might want to, it really is. And so staff are working in different settings What I would say is our expectation of what a social care uh, uh, staff worker does has increased considerably. Now, I started my first care home in 1981 and we were a cream tea society. We we had um, people driving to our home, walk in with their suitcases packed on the basis that they were going to come and live in our home. Of course, that's changed considerably. And because it's changed, the workforce skills have had to change. And now looking after people that were looked after in long-stay geriatric wards before they were all shut down and people with complex health care needs were delivering care at the end of life. So it's not just a job, it's a highly skilled professional output here, uh, which requires compassion. So how do we move this forward and and why is it that we are challenged by this and I think we have to look at the image of social care and and all all we ever kind of used to 
get in the headlines was all the very poor care. And so why would somebody choose it as a profession? Why would somebody decide that they were going to, because it wasn't a profession. Where is the um, trajectory of, of upskilling yourself and how is that recognised? Acknowledgement by the sect uh, about of the sector has been a challenge. So people coming into it have always been seen as people almost um, you know couldn't find anything else to do. And yet, what this if if it's done anything, what this pandemic has shown is the sheer dedication of the people who work in our sector and how they have really stepped up to being frontline. And I think for many years, I you know I was the vice chairman of Skills for Care. I was as it was first formed. And I remember then talking about the image and the status of social care. And we just don't seem to break that through. Even at the political level, when we start to look at migration uh, workforce coming in, you know, pushbacks to the ha- home office about the challenges we face just seem to be ignored in many ways. And 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 I was talking to the um, uh, CEO of Skills for Care quite recently and through this pandemic, what's interesting is she has said to me, she said to me that the numbers have come down slightly, but it's still over 100,000 vacancies. So will unemployment help us in recruiting? Recruiting is the first part of this. It's about retention. And I think that's where we've got to really focus. So we may recruit people. And what I'm hearing now is that people may be choosing to come into social care, which they did through the pandemic, some. But as soon as everything else opens up, they will start to move again. So we'll get this sort of vacancy rates creeping up. As soon as anything else opens up, that's what they'll do. And when we have to upskill, train to the levels that we do, we want a much more stable workforce. And the only way I can see that might happen is if we start to professionalise it and then we recognise it in the funding levels um, that, that are received in order to make sure that we can pay better because we've always got to compete with the NHS uh, for our staff, especially our nurses, huge issues around nurses, uh, huge issues about uh, registered managers who has burnout and this is going to be even even more of a consideration and lastly just just to say that you know just yesterday I was getting information back from a number of providers telling me that they are now getting staff who are worried about the second wave saying actually I don't think I want to do this anymore. That's a sad state of affairs isn't it really how about you James what Nadra's had to say there is is that your experience as well? Yeah I think that's a brilliant summary of um, the current state of the workforce for um, in the social care sector I think it's um, it's absolutely spot on I think the the government's approach to the immigration um, system, the new system that's coming in, is really disappointing. Uh, 17% of the workforce come from overseas, whether that's Europe or or further afield, and uh, it's going to make it's going to make it impossible to get junior levels of staff. So, you know, most care workers um, into this country because of the uh, salary threshold, and I think that's going to um, create a challenge having enough staff. I I think the uh, the government's reasoning is that we should be recruit- training and recruiting more UK staff, um, which I think is right, and that should be done as well. But the government has completely neglected putting any sort of plan for recruiting more staff from um, the UK workforce. You know, for ten years, if not longer. So I think that the the two 
two probably need to go in tandem rather than just simply cutting off um, access to, to to the workforce outside the UK. And David, I think this this whole question of valuing staff is is very key to what you're on about. Absolutely, I think the the work that's been done in the last four months um, across all of social care has been quite heroic um, in in a lot of cases. But I think it's, again, lack of recognition. I think, like James has just said, in terms of, you know, the the government's approach to people coming in from overseas, I think that needs to be looked at and addressed. Because if we're already talking about a situation where there's circa 120,000 shortages, climbing up to 500,000 by 2035, what's the plan to to address that? Um, And one of the, the the big issues, like like Nadra said, is because it's it's perceived as a unskilled type of job being a carer, which it clearly isn't, and then the pay is relatively low. How do you then attract people and get people not only to come and work in the industry but to stay in the industry? And I think these are all real questions that need to be addressed because otherwise the problem's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that potentially in 15 years' time, you've got a shortage of 500,000 people. So that really is, I mean, it comes on to your point in some ways about, um, you know, really investing in the team, making people feel valued. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, um, you know, just, just touching on what Nadra said earlier, um, unfortunately, and I think all, 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 all have said sort of, unfortunately, there is this misperception of, of being a, a, lo- a low-skilled industry, which is Absolutely not the case. And and I think it's it's very, very sad to see that the government have not created measures to support. Um, but I think there's another side of it that we can we can sort of try and cultivate, and that's that's from within the industry and 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 that's falling onto the leadership. And I think we have to start to build the brand of the care sector um, because it's a high, highly rewarding sector. We've uh, you know we we've touched on how heroic uh, that you know certain workers within the industry have been throughout this pandemic and and I think we need to build on that brand so to speak uh, because unfortunately if, if we're not getting the support from from above I think that that sort of movement and momentum has to come from ground up and I think it's uh, that that responsibility falls on the leaderships and, and and those sort of running those care organizations well there you are Nadra that's that's throwing it back to you I suppose you've been banging on doors for a good few years now haven't you do you do you see any of those doors opening a bit more I think I think we get all the um uh very positive conversations and and um I co-chair the Cavendish coalition which is uh the first coalition of its kind between the NHS and social care um so you know I know that that everybody accepts the role of social care, you know, from the from the NHS hierarchy as well. I think that, that the issue that we face is that we cannot, and I love that term around the brand of social care because that it, it really is an important vision that we have to have. But sadly, what happens is because we are constantly being muted as being a low pay, low skill role, and we just don't seem to be able to shake it. And, and you know, you're right, it is, it is about, you know, the leadership getting up and talking about it more. Uh, and we are doing it. We're constantly doing it. I've got you know, colleagues of um, other associations, chief execs, chair, we, we fight this consistently. 
that until and unless we can have the honest public debate about the role of social care in relation to the support it gives not only to the public who need it, but also to the NHS. And I think that the NHS colleagues, I've seen the shift in the last five years since the coalition was formed, where, where we've got Simon Stevens now saying, you know, you just look at social care. I think the problem we have is that the decision makers cannot see a way forward because they realise that the funding agenda in social care really needs to be unravelled. And, and I, I don't talk money very often when I'm uh, on, on a round table um, anywhere. I always talk about the value first and the value of social care has to be recognised first. We contribute £45 billion in monetary terms, into the economy. We employ more people uh, than the NHS. We have more beds than the NHS. And yet we're always seen as a subsidiary function to the NHS, but we're a standalone organisation. And my biggest call through this COVID and, and even before, I don't want a Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. I want a Secretary of State for Social Care. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's a, that's a really valuable overall look at the industry. Let's let's move on with your subject, uh, Zamir, because I know uh, you're very involved with the human part of the words human resources, I think, and engagement. Uh, tell us a little bit about how important that is. You know, I think it's it's really come to the fore recently, obviously, with, with, with the ongoings and, and with the pandemic and uh, I think the question mark has or the question has now been raised very firmly against employers what what are you doing to uh, sort of engage your employees and and so we're talking on a, a more general level first and uh, I think that time has come you know in these crisis moments you really really require leadership to sort of take the bull by the horns and and show that they actually care about their employees and 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 you know that creates that loyalty and that creates that togetherness, which we need in these difficult times. And so switching back to, to the, the sector of care specifically, I think uh, some of the issues that we've seen, I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, high, high, high turnover of staff is a, is a massive issue. And sometimes, I think sometimes the, the sort of onus is, is on the employers themselves, because unfortunately, in the rigmarole of trying to survive and, you know, tackling all the chaos that's going on within the sector, we, we sometimes forget that, you know, we've got human beings sort of delivering this phenomenal service to those who are really in need. And I think, you know, that disconnect starts to come. And that, that's what I was sort of saying earlier in terms of building the, building the brand of care. I mean, when, when, we, when I've said this to sort of sector leaders or, or, or sort of uh, sector owners, it may be as misinterpreted as, you know, going out and doing PR. But I think the branding starts with your own employees. And and what I mean by that, building on that concept, is you know really helping the the team understand the vision and the values that you're striving towards. I think again, just uh, you know touching on something Nadra said, it's not just a vocation, it's not just a job, it's a real calling to life, and uh, especially in an industry where very unfortunately the the, the financials don't always uh, match up to the value that's being delivered. I think as, as leaders and owners and managers within the sector, it's really, really important that we then focus on the personal development, but also focus on understanding our team and, and seeing what makes them tick and what can help them progress further. So really investing time and, and sort of energy in helping them progress uh, through the channels and, and being the best version of what they can be. And I think that then circles back around to 
creating a loyalty in, in that organization, creating that togetherness and that, that teamwork and unity, which you need, especially in sort of the times that we're facing at the moment where there's massive uncertainty, massive unpredictability and, and you know, many, many more challenges to come. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of difficulties on an HR level, on an employee level, as we sort of see the, the economy try to unlock. Um, but obviously, it, there's going to be some faltering areas. And I think now is the time for the leadership to really sort of transform their approach to seeing their employees as assets, but you know, going away from that and seeing them as actual people and part of the journey. And, and there's so many benefits that can then come out from that, you know, creating motivation, creating inspiration, um, helping people's well-being and giving them a sense of purpose in life, helping them sort of really lock into the values and also um, creating that circular feedback where the employees can then come back to the, the, the management and say, hey, I think we can do this and this to make, make this whole experience better. And I think that will inspire the innovation. Um, so that that's kind of the journey that we're trying to really push uh, in terms of leadership and employers, you know, really taking the mechanics out of the relationship and actually look at looking at the individuals as as what they are, people. And I suppose, David, this comes down to valuing people, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. I, I think you can have all the locked doors you want, you can have all the policies you want, etc. But if that culture isn't there, you're already you're fighting a losing battle and you're always going to be compromised. The service that you're delivering is going to be compromised. Um, and, and I think the industry has other difficulties, obviously, in terms of the, the, the pay rates, obviously, the coronavirus, all of those other issues. And it's how to get across to people that actually we massively appreciate what you're doing. And we acknowledge that and we appreciate that. Um, and because there's issues around pay, you can't always pay people what, what they're worth. It's how can you then show to staff that you do actually value them? James, I suppose from the legal point of view, you're always looking to dot the I's and cross the T's, but you must have to take the, the human perspective into account as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is normally part of a conversation when we're speaking to clients who are dealing with a, an HR issue is, you know, the vast majority want to be dealing with most situations in a, you know, in a positive and compassionate way. And I think that's something that we try and really work with clients on is to um, you know, be really proactive in HR management, because I think that often where you see relationships breaking down um, and things not working so well is often because things just get left and haven't been dealt with um, effectively. And often that's not deliberate. It's just because people are really busy. But I think that if managers and providers can be really proactive um, in their HR management, then that can go a, a long way to, to making sure that the relationship really thrives. Nadra, from your perspective, it's, it's been a year or two, obviously, since you ran a, a care home personally. But have you noticed a different attitude amongst the staff from the days when you used to run care homes? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm a trustee of uh, um, care home, military care homes that are under the Royal British Legion. And I do, I, I, I think a well-run and a good care service, you can see the difference now in that, that the point around leadership is that the staff walk around with kind of real confidence and understand the role. I think when I started a care home, it was pretty much almost a chambermaid type service in the 80s, you know, because people were well. They were, you know, they uh, were ambulant. We we didn't have people who were incontinent because they, the, the, 
people were being looked after in hospitals at that time. So the role was much more a subsidiary role about sort of, you know, a, a different type of support. We're now talking about people who are are highly trained. And I always use this example because in a hospital setting, when you get your medication, it's, it's, it's given to you from a trained nurse. In a care home, we train our staff to give out medication. The role is the same, the setting is different, and the skills required are the same. And yet we still see it as a subsidiary role if it's in social care, but it's a really important role um, in, in the NHS. Zamir, I guess it's, it's uh, just to emphasise that point, it's all about investing in your people. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, I think um, sometimes we bring the team in to serve the values and the vision that we're trying to build. And and they become so integral to that. Um, and, and it's so, so important then to for want of a better word, give it, give a bit more of a damn, if you know what I mean, you know, trying to really care about the people that are around you and, and being innovative. It's not, it can't uh, be about money, unfortunately, um, because of the, the, the constraints in place, but there are loads of innovative ways. It's just a matter of sort of peeling away that, that first part of the surface and digging a bit deeper and getting to know people, getting to know what their why is, you know, why are they with you? Why are they in the sector? And then building on that and helping them sort of really aspire to, to, to even better. Hi, Richard. Hey, Johnny, how's it going? Uh, Richard, not the best. I'm still struggling to fill the empty beds in the home. Oh, no. Have you given the guys a smooth digital call? No. Could they help? Sure, they help care home owners like you and me fill our beds with private paying residents. They can market you online on Google and Facebook. Oh yeah? I better give them a call. You'll be crazy not to, Johnny. I've built up a waiting list working with Smooth Digital. Just go on Google and search Smooth Digital. S-M-O-O-T-H. 100% Smooth Digital. You're a lifesaver. Well, welcome back to this Care Home Management Magazine podcast, where we're discussing recruitment and staffing the way forward. This podcast is sponsored by care home marketing expert Smooth Digital, helping fill care and nursing home beds with private paying residents. And just to reiterate who's with me today, it's Nadra Ahmed, the chairman of the National Care Association, Samir Nazarali, who's CEO and founder of Simplify Group, James Sage, the HR and employment law partner, at Royds Withy King, and David Beatty, who's health and social care consultant at Care Ideals. And David, let me uh, move on by talking to about your subject. You're, I know, looking at successful strategies for recruitment and retention. I think also very keen on values-based interviewing. It's not just a case of just taking somebody in off the streets, is it? No, no, absolutely not. Um, I, I think you've got to try and make sure that the people who are applying for jobs actually want to be there and why they want to be there, as opposed to, well, it's just a job or I need a job, etc. Um, it's about checking that or clarifying that they buy into your values um, and that they're going to help the culture of the home or of the domiciliary care provider or the hospital, whatever it is, um, that they actually will help build the culture and help develop the culture. So in terms of, in, instead of asking, you know, the fairly standard interview questions, um, it would be probing a bit more to check on things like kindness, compassion. For example, you know, have you ever faced an ethical dilemma at work? What was the issue and what did you do? 
um, what you understand by teamwork and give, an, give us an example of how you've worked well as part of a team. What would you do if you saw colleagues stealing from a resident? Explain what you mean by the term care. I think that's a very simple question, but I think it can be quite telling in terms of how that's answered, in terms of they're talking about things very much by rote as opposed to they genuinely understand and genuinely believe in what care is. And I think the more of those kind of people who have the same values as you do that are working for your organisation and the better the teamwork's going to be and good culture and good teamwork will ultimately provide what you ultimately, what you ultimately want which is the best possible care for your residents and your clients. And James, from the legal point of view, I suppose you've got to be mindful of the legal complications or the legal implications of every interview question you ask, haven't you? I don't, I don't think so. Yes, you, know, that you, sh- you need to be ensuring that there aren't um, any parts of your process that are potentially discriminatory. But I think that, you know, I'd hope that most organisations are, um, you know, pretty well versed in that now. I think that, you know, the more, you know, the more pressing issues, as we've discussed, is around um, the values. And I think that the the current timing of, of, of this conversation is, is really key because, um, as Nadra said, there's lots of um, people flooding into the market for looking for new jobs because we're starting to see and we will continue to see significant numbers of redundancies in other sectors. I think that it's absolutely essential that the providers really look at whether those um, people are coming into the workplace for for their values and and I think some will be and I think it's a real opportunity for the sector to actually um, convert some people who maybe never thought about working into working in care and who do also have the right values to do so but clearly there will also be some people who are just looking at at a way of um, you know temporarily possibly um, earning some extra money Um, and I think that that's where the you know the values um, part of the recruitment process is going to be so important. Bearing in mind what James had to say there Nadra are you welcoming all this or is it can this sudden sort of rush of recruitment be a bit of a double-edged sword? I'm optimistic in in, by nature and I think if if we can get the return Tension bit right, and that will be dependent highly on uh, on a progression pathway, a career pathway, uh, and the reward, as well as the value and the status. Then, then we do have a real opportunity here, and that was uh, part of the conversation I was having with with the CEO of Skills for Care, and it's a conversation I had with the previous Minister for uh, Care and the current one. I think we've got to think through how we make people realise that they are valued and the role that they would undertake in social care carries weight and status. You know, the fact that we had to, through the pandemic, fight to get our staff the same right of being able to go into a supermarket to buy basic food and supplies just tells us how vast that... that um, ravine is for us to kind of cross. I think that status is important and Zamir is that your experience as well and in fact also uh, is it quite often the way that the people who move on are the people you most want to keep? Yeah absolutely Um, you know I think this is all going back to sort of building building that mission as someone walks through the door and you know just touching on uh, what, what, what David has said you know culture is absolutely critical when you're bringing someone into your environment um, because you're selling your vision to them and you're hoping that whilst they stay with you, not only do they develop, but they build those ties. The more you can give someone a sense of purpose, the more likely you are 
to if if you can't sort of retain them forever at least you can get the best value out of them whilst they're there and we've touched on what a great opportunity there is in the economy at the moment because of unfortunately because of employment elsewhere has sort of brought very pot- potentially great quality of candidates in into the care sector possibly but i think trying to understand that they may still be having that bridging the gap mentality as they come in i think it's we've got to we've got to be great storytellers and great vision builders now um and i think that is what's going to really hook people uh and you know there'll still be people moving through and moving on um but i think this will be a way to keep the majority of sort of transiting through you know turn their heads a little bit and think actually this is really rewarding and and this could be my purpose now going forward so i suppose david it's really down to individual care home managers i suppose really selling the whole issue of care and uh, their own personal care homes absolutely and and i, th- I think it's it's not just the managers um, i think particularly with the smaller providers um you've got owners who are very actively involved um so i think it's them working with the managers to to send that message about culture about valuing staff about particularly now with with coronavirus and uh things potentially like PTSD for some of the, the the care staff how people will be supported through that um if there's a second wave this is what we will do to support you and then beyond that that it's we regard what you do as it's a calling it's a vocation it's not just a job and we prepare to invest in you and you know if if we invest in you and even if you do leave in 2 years time or 3 years time or what whatever it is you're going to leave but you're going to say good things about us because we invested in you and because we were prepared to train um and provide you with the right type of training open and transparent communication again it it's about showing from the outset that these are our core values this is how we operate open and transparent communication this is the benchmark um and we expect everybody um to deliver to the same level and if you can't we'll provide you with training but that that is kind of the benchmark that we operate at um and we want people who have the same values to work with us to provide the best care that we can for our residents and our clients well i think that leads us rather nicely on thank you david to uh, james's topic because i know james you're very keen on managing employee well-being that that should be a high priority yeah i do i mean i think it's Uh, I think in all sectors and for all employers well-being is is going to be quite high on um, the agenda. Uh, I think it was pre-covid but I think it absolutely has to be now. And um you know just to give some context a third of all um fit notes are either for stress, anxiety or depression. So we know that there's a growing swell of um employees str- struggling with um mental health. And um the IPPR did a did a survey during covid which found that you know 50% of care workers are saying that their mental health has declined during covid and i think worryingly 71% of 18 to 34 year olds are reporting um that their mental health has deteriorated so that's the kind of up and coming uh, workforce so it is a a really kind of significant issue uh, and i think that there are some key reasons why this is something that providers and managers want to focus on and i think now just point about uh, retaining staff is is key because if we can sort that out then recruitment becomes less of a problem and we simply won't be able to retain staff to the sector if we're not focusing on their well-being uh, i think it also plays into recruiting new staff because again um, if there's a perception that uh, you know staff come into the sector work 
you know, extremely hard in a challenging role and they're not supported with their well-being, that's going to put, um, you know, future um, staff off joining the sector. And I think it's also really important in terms of the quality of care that's provided, because how can a, uh, an employee that's really struggling with their own well-being provide really high quality care and support to, to service users? I think that's going to be a challenge. And I think from a legal perspective, uh, certainly if someone's got a disability and certainly, um, you know, many mental health issues could amount to a disability, then there's legal obligations to um, consider making um, reasonable adjustments and those sorts of things as well. So um, I think that's why, that's why it's important. And I think that, that some of the solutions are going to be, firstly, from a manager point of view, is, is ensuring that they're looking after their own well-being. I think lots of managers are, set, you know, are, are told or are encouraged to look after the well-being of their, of their staff. Um, but I think the starting point is looking, making, you know, looking after their own mental health and making sure that they're you know they're able to able to do that and have got the time to do that but then looking at what they need to do for their staff I think that it can be quite daunting for managers who have such a really broad range of responsibilities to start saying to a manager we actually now want you to take responsibility for ensuring the well-being of your staff I think that sounds on the face of it quite a big undertaking and I think that it can be broken down to three key steps and I think the first one is identifying whether there are any um, mental health concerns. And, and that's really as simple as just checking in regularly with staff and making sure that, you know, as a manager, you're starting those conversations about someone's well-being and their, their mental health um, to ensure that, you know, you know, because often people won't want to talk about it or, or, or won't feel comfortable talking about it and they might need just a bit of encouragement to do that. And the, the second thing is understanding what the... Um, what the triggers are for um, their anxiety, stress, depression, or whatever it might be. And I think that obviously some of the mental health concerns as a result of COVID are probably going to be more serious. We could see um, you know, anything up to potentially kind of post-traumatic stress disorder um, out, of, out of some of the experiences that uh, staff have had. Uh, but I think the, the range of triggers could be really significant. It could be that people are concerned about their own health coming into work. They could be concerned about whether they're still able to provide a high quality care service with everything that's going on with the pandemic. They might feel that their employer is not really communicating with them properly about the risks and how they're managing them and what protections they're putting in place. It could be, you know, we've seen lots of problems about getting sufficient PPE and testing and infection control measures. And that's going to give a lot of staff quite significant concern. Um, or maybe things in their personal life. You know, they can't get childcare at the moment because schools and, and nurseries have been closed. Their partner might be at risk of redundancy. All of these things are going to um, be, you know, creating quite a significant toll on, on, on staff. So I think it's really important that we're listening and understanding because it's going to be different for each individual employee. And then the, the third part of the kind of process is providing the support, and that needs to be tailored to, to individuals. But um, I think that a well-being plan will include, you know, what their coping strategies might be. Can you provide peer support? Um, can you look at ways of, um, in advance, providing training to help build resilience you know I think um, Naja said at the outset staff are worried now about um, wave two and I think that's a real concern and I think that there are steps that managers and providers can take now to try and build that resilience prepare, enable staff to prepare for what wave two wave three or whatever else it might be that's ahead of us is going to look like and how they can you know prepare prepare for that and in some cases it might be you know providing professional support whether that's through a helpline helpline support for staff or you know referring them out to their gp or their occupational health so so i think there's you know there's quite a lot of practical stuff that uh, managers and providers can do and i, I just think it's really key that those 
processes and um, thoughts you know start early and definitely i think you know there is a risk that we lose staff um, i think i think once staff have an opportunity to, to reflect as we get towards the end of wave one you may well see a, a, a large number of the feeling well actually i don't think i can go through this again um, with wave two on the horizon and i think that's that's the key point where you know measures have got to be in place so they feel comfortable that there's that support for them thank you james yes that's very interesting nadra do you uh, subscribe to that that uh, there are people fearful of wave two and that might just be the the, the straw that ba- breaks the camel's back yeah absolutely I and mean, i think we've started to hear about it more and more and i think um you know the concerns it doesn't help when you hear you know testing is abandoned or now we're going to roll out a new test i mean i think there's so there's a string of broken promises um and and i think you know staff are exhausted and they feel very vulnerable the only thing that keeps our staff in our services is their commitment to the role that they're fulfilling and if you've got good leaders in situ who are making sure that their welfare is is at the front of your minds and you're actually communicating that and making sure that you're consistently telling your staff that you know you're doing you're doing everything possible and you're and you're committing to it and investing in them uh in their well-being in their welfare whether that's through um a counselling service that, you know, they can pick up a phone tool, whether that's physically showing them you've got fogging going on in every room, you know, on a regular basis, whatever that might be, that's going to be what will support people to feel more comfortable about coming in. But actually the value base, I go back to that, of what what's said outside i mean you know the 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 pm's famous comments uh, and i'm you know i've been told time and time again that um you know it's not what he meant but it's what he said impact of that on our sector on that particular day was was phenomenal you know i had texts and emails coming in consistently saying what on earth are you going to say to him can you just respond can you respond can you respond because people were so upset by it it um, really shook us didn't it i think it shook everybody who uh, is involved in the industry i'm sure did, did you find that as well samir did you uh, did that really strike home with you yeah absolutely i think um you know the points that have been made is it, it's so difficult and we've got an imperfect environment at the moment and 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 we all wish things were better but there's things beyond our control and i think that's where sort of engagement and communication is so key because it's 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 all well having an intention to 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 care about the well-being of your your team but sort of making them feel that uh, is a whole different uh, a story and as james said you know it's not groundbreaking movements that have to be taken it's it's very simple practical steps uh, that ca- that can be done to achieve that that level of you know tranquility I think in in a difficult environment, you can't provide a perfect situation, but you can provide a transparent and and honest one. And I think, you know, where you get shockwaves like we've seen, um, it's really the the onus is on the the leadership and and the management and the the employer operators there to actually, you know, physically get involved and, and say to their team, look, you know, there's things we can't control, but this is what we can do and this is what we're going to do. And having that open consultation. And I think that sort of gives some sort of assurance or relief, even if you can't quite get a solution out of that engagement, you still give people the opportunity to get things off their chest and off their mind. And I think sort of that peace of mind is obviously intrinsically linked with, with keeping 
a good state of well-being. Yes, we talk a lot about recruitment and retention and keeping the the staff happy. So I suppose, David, staff aren't going to be happy unless managers are content with their role as well. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, I think James James mentioned earlier, you, you can't expect the manager to look after all of the staff if nobody's looking after the manager. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of the managers have very broad, very wide ranging jobs um, and they're dealing with all sorts of different things in, in, in the, the, the normal course of things, all sorts of different things. And obviously then the, the complications and the chaos of the last four months, what support is being provided to, to, to the managers? And if, if the manager's not coping, how can you then expect the manager to then help the staff. So for me, that would be one of one of the first issues or one of the, probably the first issue to be addressed would be how's the manager doing? And then once that's been looked at, then look at how, how the staff are doing, because the manager is going to have to drive through all of the support consistently over the next few months and the, the next couple of years. So it needs to start with the manager and then looking at, at how the staff are as well. We're fast running out of time, I'm afraid. So what I'm going to do is just throw one question, which I'll put to all of you. If you could give me a sort of 15, 20 second answer, that would be great. Because one thing that's occurred to me is that we're hearing that applications are soaring. Vacancies are up a little bit, but applications could be as high as 35% up. If we were to look at this again in 12 months time, what would the picture look like, do you think? Nadra, first of all. I think... It would be very different because people will have found other roles. Interesting. Samir? I'm I'm optimistic that hopefully we will have a lot of transition in and out of the industry, but I hope there'll be there'll be a growing number of people that, that sort of turn to care as their as their sort of purpose in life. David? I I would probably agree with what Nadra said. I, I think there will probably be that loss of people who've come in i think unfortunately they will leave as well and and then i think there's a real focus on providers and managers to do everything that they can to retain staff and how about you james does you agree with that yeah i think i do i think that the, the applications will will decrease and i think that we will lose um staff but i think the positive is there's an opportunity for managers and providers to do everything they can to try and keep those people so there is an underlying positive and hopefully hopefully the overall numbers um, will increase but I, I can't see them staying at these sorts of numbers well thank you all of you for taking part it's been a very very interesting discussion and the time just seems to have flown by uh, thank you to Nadra Ahmed chairman of the National Care Association Zamir Nazarali CEO and founder of Simply Group James Sage HR and employment law partner at Royds Withy King and David Beatty health and social care consultant at Care Ideals. You've been listening to the Care Home Management Magazine podcast, Recruitment and Staffing the Way Forward, with me, Alan Rustad, and it was sponsored by Care Home Marketing Experts, Smooth Digital, helping fill care and nursing home beds with private paying residents. We'll have more podcasts for you over the forthcoming weeks. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, and I hope you'll tune in to us again soon. Bye bye. 